Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. time on the Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, June 10th, 2021. And like I always like to do, I uh, tell you what's in the news, because you could be listening to this 10 years from now. So I'm going to flip the paper over, appropriately doing this, to the sports section. And in the news, the Sun-Times headline this just goes to show you how insane the city of Chicago is obsessed with football. We're in June, in the middle of a great baseball race. Teams in first place. Two teams in first place. You got the NBA playoffs going. Full page. I'm going to show my guest. Full page on the back of the Sun-Times. Practice fakes perfect. It's about Mitch Trubisky. He doesn't even play for the Bears anymore. Chicago, you have a problem, okay? You have a problem with football. You're into it. It's June. should be baseball. should be Tim Anderson, okay, on the back. Sorry about that. Didn't mean to go on that tangent. Love Tim Anderson. A little too much passion. All right, as I always do, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. This distinguished guest is no stranger to the show. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, this is Kevin Blackstone, uh, one time of Chicago. Um, 7781 at Northwestern University, Evanston, Illinois, 1979, put the last loss, I believe, on the Michigan State Spartans before they went on to win the uh, national championship. I was not at the game. I was studying at the library, of course. That's what a good Northwestern student does. Um, <laughs> uh, went on to work at the Chicago Reporter, where I met one Ben Jarofsky. Um, we covered, uh, one story together and went to, uh, many games together. Um, uh, we really had our pulse on the racial and political atmosphere, I think, of the greater Chicago area. Uh, and I eventually left and went to Dallas. And now I'm in D.C., my, uh, my hometown, which last won an NBA championship in 1978. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you all remember that. Um, they weren't even Bobby near town Davis. then. They, they were, weren't they the Baltimore Bullets? 
No, no, they had long. They'd been in, okay. in here for a while. Come on, we're okay. playing at the playing at the great Capital Center out in Landover, Maryland, uh, which was the darkest arena I think I've ever been in in my life. But nonetheless, won the championship there. Um, Big E, Wes Unsell, ah, what a memorable Tom Henderson, uh, the steady Tom Henderson in point guard. And Kevin Porter, um, I believe, was the point guard. Wasn't Kevin Porter on that no, team? Um, Tommy Henderson. Tommy Henderson. Kevin Porter may have still been on the team, but Tom Henderson was the steady. He was steady at the wheel. Um, very. Understood. What about Phil Chenier? Was he on that team? Phil Chenier, I think, was still on that team. Um, I'd have to look back. But the big, the 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 the, the main players, of course, was the Big E and Bobby Dandridge, who they'd gotten in a trade or free agency a year ahead of time. And he really changed the uh, changed everything. Dick Motta was the coach. Um, yes. Ah, uh, the '70s, good pro basketball. The '70s. All right. So uh, originally, when I enlisted uh, Kevin into this enterprise for today's show, we were going to talk about 1971. But uh, when I just decided to change abruptly, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and he's and Kevin was cool with it. By the way, Kevin didn't complete his, he went on a tangent oh. as, as is his <laughs> want to talk about his favorite teams in Washington. He didn't tell you he's a columnist for the Washington post, a distinguished sports columnist for the Washington post, uh, and a star on TV on sports talk shows. So, uh, I just said, I just had this, uh, impulse was switch gears. And let's talk about our beloved uh, Chicago reporter, where we got our start. Uh, right now, there's a tr change with the Chicago reporter. Change is always tough for people to take, particularly when it goes from something to nothing. Uh, that's my editorial uh, exactly. contribution to it. <laughs> and um, Kevin is very active in the Chicago reporter alumni group. I am less active in it, uh, just because I'm lazy. But uh, anyway... I've been, Kevin, I've been meaning to have a show dedicated to the reporter. I get very emotional and choked up when I think about the reporters where I got my start in Chicago, our mutual boss, the man who hired both of us, who saw something good in us. Uh, when a lot of, speaking for myself, nobody else did. Uh, John, Johnny Mac McDermott, who was so different for me. And I, I know Kevin, you're going to opine on this. He, he was, uh, what a full generation ahead of me, white, Irish, Catholic, uh, conservative on social issues, man whose heart was huge, March, literally, he did march with Dr. Martin Luther King, okay? And he had the pictures on the wall to show it. Unbelievable. And um, had a great vision yep. about integration in Chicago. Nobody else was talking about integration in Chicago. Nope. And he brought together a group of young journalists who were vastly different than him politically, age, just social outlook, all of that. And that's how I met Kevin, who's become one of my dear friends all these years. So let's just talk about, Kevin, why don't you just talk a little bit about how John found you, brought you on, and then we'll talk about where the reporter is right now. Go ahead. Oh, man, my foundation in, um, in journalism. And it, and it actually, start, it, it actually started um, my junior year at, uh, at Northwestern studying, studying journalism. And um, uh, there was a woman who was a year ahead of me. Her name was Nancy Rawls. And Nancy was uh, working her senior year at The Reporter. And she, she was a journalism student. She told me, you, you'd be great for this. You, you, should, you should come work at The Reporter. 
I didn't know much about it. And she told me about it. I was like, okay, well, how do I do it? And she said, the first thing you have to do is you have to take a public relations job at this company run by this woman named Lillian Calhoun, who actually was one of the original editors at the Chicago Reporter. So I was like, I don't do PR. She said, you got to do PR. So, and get in good. So that's what I did. I went and applied for a job. I got in with Lillian Calhoun writing press releases about Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And, <laughs> and she liked me. And, um, and she put in a good word for me with, with John McDermott to take over for, for Nancy Rawls's, uh, 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 after Nancy, Rawl de Nancy Rawls departed. And I interviewed and I got the job and I was there my senior year in 1980. And um, it was it was great. So John didn't find me, but um, the reporter kind of found me through through Nancy. And uh, it was an intimidating place to work because this wasn't just people weren't just covering breaking news on a daily basis. This was investigative. This was this was in investigative data journalism into social issues which everybody is doing today, but nobody except the Chicago Reporter was doing it then. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And, and, and this, it, 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 to this day, is the most, it was the most diverse staff I've ever worked with in my life and fell in love with everybody, not just the reporters, not just the editors, um, the great office manager, Helena Appleton, her family, um, everybody's girlfriends and boyfriends <laughs> and kids. Yeah. I mean, it was an unbelievable place to work. And not only that, your everything you did meant something. Everything you did resonated. People paid attention. The other media paid attention to you. I mean, it was it. it, it to this day, there there has been nothing, just nothing like it. Just nothing like it. And so that's foundational for me. And um, just to fast forward, you know, the middle part of last year or late or I don't know, late, you know, early fall, late summer, whatever. And uh, I just happened to hear or see something about the reporter not being published. And I, and I started to look into it because I still donate money to him and everything. And I found out that w what had happened and the, the last editor was it had been pushed out the door and it ceased publication and somebody else was taken over. Or it just, I, I just couldn't believe it because I've been, I'll just add this because I've been teaching journalism now at the university of Maryland for uh, like 12 years. And one of my dreams was to get someone from university of Maryland journalism college to get an internship, if not a job at the Chicago reporter. And uh, I just hadn't I hadn't done it. And now to see this, what's happened, um, it, 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 you know, it is heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. I'll say that. Love that place. Um, yeah, I uh, we could go on and on as to uh, yeah. oh, I'm older than uh, Kevin. So he which he always reminds me of, by the way, that's something you'll bet I'm uh, younger than you. Did you know that? Uh, but I <laughs> uh, love saying that. But anyway, uh, he's getting up there. He's getting up there. OK, just throwing that out there. He's getting up there. So two old guys get together and they talk about the old times and we could do that. 
uh, one of my favorite stories of all time. Here we go. 1984, John McDermott calls us in the office. All right, we got a black guy. We got a Jewish guy. We're going to do a story on black-Jewish relations. Here's my Rolodex file. Call every black and every Jew in the Rolodex file and go out and interview them. Now beat it. <laughs> We're driving around the city of Chicago, going to eat. I'll meet with you. Good. So many legends. We so many legends that we interviewed oh for that God. story. Conrad Worrell, Reverend oh. Marks. I mean, it just goes on. James oh. Bevel. Oh my goodness. Bevel. And, oh my goodness. Yeah. Remember sitting in Bevel's <laughs> West Side apartment. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And this is a guy who was a critical um, strategizer in the civil rights movement in the United States. And by this time, he had evolved into, I'm not sure what James was at that time, but he didn't really talk to us a whole lot about the civil rights movement. In fact, I recall him telling us about how to clean your colon. Yes. Um, <laughs> it was a well, bizarre interview. It was a bizarre interview. James Bevel, folks, the millennials out there, he tr he was one of the chief lieutenants, as Kevin was saying, to Martin Luther King. Yeah. And he was the one who came up with so much of the strategies, like in Birmingham, where all the children would get arrested and they would fill the jail. He was like this organizational genius who was like one step of every, everybody in a colossal game of chess. And yeah, yeah, when King was killed, like so many people in the movement, Kevin, they kind of lost their minds and lost their ways. And Bevel wound up at an apartment on the West Side, and he was a Reagan Republican running for Congress. And wow, and we come in, he starts talking about the colon. Is and I, folks, I'm so naive, I'd never seen the infinity symbol before. It's a <laughs> moment of confession. And I'm like, why do you have the number? He keeps writing the eight number, he's talking about infinity. I don't know. And I remember I said, why are you writing eight on the wall? And he's wow. looking at me like, Jesus, this one's dumb. Right. That's the infinity signal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So that, that was John McDermott. His Rolodex was unbelievable. It was. Uh, so what's, all right, tell folks what happened to the reporter. So best we know, uh, we understand what happened to a reporter is there was a change in leadership at the Community Renewal Society. And the Community Renewal Society, CRS, is the mothership to the Chicago Reporter. And the new leadership at Community Renewal Society wasn't seeing eye to eye with the last editor of the Chicago Reporter or necessarily what they were doing or what they were about. And, um, basically put the whole thing on ice and um all the staff were either let go or left on their own because there was they, they weren't going to be doing the same work they had been doing or they just they couldn't see a future and um and now um you know we're almost to summer of 2021 um they're not doing investigative journalism, certainly not doing data journalism. Um, they have hired some, best I can tell, some people who work in academia um, to write opinion pieces. Um, 
maybe a journalist or two. Um, and you would remember this, know this better than, than, than I would have been. Uh, and I can't think of his name, but Hugo, who was at maybe WBBM in Chicago and mm-hmm. something happened there. And at any rate, they scooped him up. And it's just an entirely different publication. Their social media um, sites have, are, are dormant. Um, it's just, it's not even, it's, I mean, to call it the Chicago Reporter um, is a complete insult to what the Chicago Reporter uh, was founded to be and what it it had been for as long as I've been associated with it, as long as I've known it, as long as you've known it. And it's just really disappointing. And the other thing that's disappointing is, is that what kind of journalism is most in need at this time? It's the journalism that the Chicago Reporter was founded to do and had been doing. Social justice, racial justice. Um, and it's not doing it. And, um, you know, it's not only a big loss for Chicago. It's just a big loss everywhere. Uh, this is, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the, the reporter's about to turn 50 years old. Um, and I was telling somebody this the other day, John McDermott and Lillian Calhoun got the reporter up and going out of the embers of the uprisings following the assassination of Martin Luther King and what had happened to race relations um, in this country. And right now we're in the embers of the George Floyd murder and what has happened to race relations and 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 racial reconciliation in this country. The Chicago Reporter is needed as much now as it was as it was needed 50 years ago. We're 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 almost at the same place. You know, we're 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 coming out of a civil rights movement of the 21st century. And um it, it's 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 needed. It's needed. Yeah, no, that's that's uh well put on many levels. And, uh, I've not written about the reporter, Kevin, and what, what's happened. I probably should, uh, probably too close uh, to it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very painful. You're right. I probably am too close to it. But when you talked about that, the story, uh, John McDermott story from the riots in 68, this is not funny, but it is funny. Uh, John McDermott was a lifelong civil rights activist. Again, he marched with Dr. King. Uh, he was a white man, a white, uh, Irish American, uh, and he worked within uh, the Catholic Church and in the branch of the Catholic Church that was pre- promoting integration. Uh, and as such, he had contacts in black areas, which made him very unique uh, for a white person in the city of Chicago. And so when the, when the riots broke out in 1968, John, he's told me the story a million times, and he always said it with a laugh, folks, and uh, usually over some Irish whiskey on a Friday afternoon. And he goes... I thought I would drive Jameson's out to the West. Specifically. Jameson's, yes. <laughs> I thought I would drive out with his friend, some other white guy. I forget the guy's name. We get in the car. We're going to drive to the West Side. <laughs> Go to the West Side. There's like rocks going off. The, <laughs> the cops are like, what are you doing? McDermott goes, eh, maybe this wasn't the best of ideas. <laughs> rocks are going out and banging off the car. Get out of here, whitey. <laughs> you know, maybe do the integration thing another day. Um, but yeah, in the, in the aftermath, he was fearless. 
Yeah, well, he wasn't insane. He did turn around and get out of there, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to your point, and that's a really good one, what emerged, there were a lot of programs that emerged, uh, open housing program, integration efforts that emerged from the assassination of Dr. King and uh, the uprisings that followed uh, and Mayor da- that Mayor Daley trying to figure out how he could balance the demands for integration and open housing and civil rights with the fears that white people had uh, didn't work out really at all. Uh, and so McDermott created and Lillian Calhoun, she was gone by the time I got there, so I never really got to know her like Kevin did, but um, they created the reporter. It was supposed to be dispassionate investigative journalism into racial issues. And I would struggle with this very much because I always wanted to at typical me wanted to put my opinions and things and and john would be no just what did you find what did you discover what are the facts what are the and so uh you know i lasted at the reporter for as long as i could before i said i gotta put my opinions and things Uh, but by the time i left john had left as well so uh, i love the man incredibly but you're right kevin just think about what the world would be dispassionate investigative stories yep. about race in America. You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Needed more than ever. Needed more, needed, needed more than ever. And, you know, so many, so many, uh, publications, um, or outlets, uh, I won't say they've copied what the reporter, uh, was doing because a lot of them certainly weren't aware of this little tiny publication, um, that came out once a month. It was, what, 12 pages long, um, folded over three times and we would hand deliver to anybody who would, who's, who would let us in to give it to them. And, um, uh, but you know, in a, in so many ways, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're counting with computers, um, certain data inputs and coming up with stories that show inequities. And we were doing it without computers. We were doing it by hand, we were using census data. Um, you know, we were using city hall data. We were using Cook County data. Um, we were using um, zip code data, and finding those inequalities, and forcing people to recognize them, and in some, and in many instances, to change them. Right? I mean, we we created conversation around this issue in the city of Chicago, in the city of Chicago, on a regular basis. The Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun-Times, they followed us. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. No, uh, it is amazing. And uh, so the Chicago Reporter Alumni, a group that got together to at least call attention to the fact that Community Renewal Society had silenced this great institution. uh, And there was some exchanges with the Community Renewal Society. And I, from afar, watched it and and essentially, they were saying, uh, we'll do what we want to do. Thank you for your opinion. Now beat it. That's my take on it. Yeah. If, if, if you have a different one, Kev, Kevin, please weigh in. Um, so where are we now? The, uh, the alumni of Chicago Reporter still meeting, uh, still feel very passionate, the, the people in that group. Right. Who, and Kevin and I are sort of the old guys in this. This generation of reporter reporters goes into the, uh, the 21st century. So there's some young people on it. Well, not that Kevin's not young at heart. He's young. Uh, but so talk about where you're at now, the, uh, where we're at with the alumni and what the future could be 
so the, the 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 group has grown, and you're right, and it is uh, um, multi generational in terms of the reporter, right? There are a bunch of people involved who are 21st century millennials, right? Um, uh, but we all have the same passion, and that is to restore the reporter to what to what it was. So there have been some, to your point, Ben, there's been some communication with CRS, and basically the message has been so far. Uh, thank you very much. We're not interested. We're going to do what we're going to do. Um, and I think what we would love to, to do is, uh, you know, initially it was, you know, can we, can you partner with us so that we can help to restore um, the publication to what it was under your auspices? Um, and now I think it's, you know what, if you're not going to let us do this, and you've clearly turned it into something else. Can we can we at least reach a deal where we can have the, you know, the the name of of what it was, and build something around that? And since you you know, and and you can take the next fifty years with your own publication and rename it, you know, a, a new voice from from the Community Renewal Society for the twenty first century, and leave this old relic um, to to someone else. And that's basically that's basically where it is. But I tell you what, our support uh, the the support has grown um, uh, not only um, in bodies but also uh, with some financial support. Um, so we're you know I think everybody's really hopeful, and which is all you can be right now that that um, the Community Renewal Society will will see some things our way. Um, and let us, I mean, after all, I mean, the Community Renewal Society, people may know it, but clearly what they know best about the Community Renewal Society has got to be the publication. I mean, that's the thing that's on the street. I mean, you don't, I don't know that you can roll up in front of a church on the west side or south side and see a, I don't know if you're going to see a CRS billboard out front or placard in the, in the lawn. Um, but the Chicago Reporter made news. It would be on the nightly news. Um, it had a social media presence, um, you know, and it was doing good work. Uh, and and I think that's that's really what we're trying to what we're trying to emphasize. We want to we want to save. We want to rescue the Chicago Reporter from have having gone adrift. Yeah, well put. And uh, so. We'll move on from the Chicago Reporter because as long as I have Kevin Blackstone here, I want to ask him some questions about uh, one of his more recent uh, columns that really uh, got me thinking about a lot of things. But uh, before we do that, uh, Kevin, is there uh, a website or an email address that people can go to for more information if they want to support the reporter? Have we gotten that far? Uh, with the um... yeah, you can um, uh, save um, save TCR. I'm got to remember exactly what the uh, what the whole website thing is. Um, uh, I'll have to pull it up and share it with you a little bit later. I can't seem to find it okay. right now. But um, if you go on social media, if you go to Twitter uh, at save TCR as in the Chicago reporter, um, you can find some information there. Um, and then, uh, uh, later on, I, I might, I might be able to dig up, um, 
what we have is a uh, donation site where people can uh, make a contribution to the future. All right. Uh, let, let's move on <clears throat> to talk about a column you recently wrote. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's something I've not talked about on the show. I generally don't talk a lot about sports on the show, even though I'm obsessed with sports. Follow it passionately, as you know. Yes, you are. Uh, and yes. um, uh, Die Hard. Your bull's uh, hat right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and I got nice the season, brim up so Kevin can see it, you know, <laughs> so it's like in his face. It's, I see it. I see it. All right. I see it. I see it right there. Despite that eight years he spent in the Chicago area, he remains a Washington fan. So that's a whole other issue. We get to vote a whole oh, show yes, on that. The cry for help that that represents. Um, yeah. And thanks for those two years of Michael Jordan down here. Those are great years. Woo, boy. Okay, go <laughs> ahead. The worst two years of the greatest player of all time. <laughs> uh, and that leads me to this. I think Michael Jordan uh, owes an apology of sorts to Kwame Brown. Um but Kwame Brown, this has been on my mind. I've not mentioned this. Uh, and I hadn't really talked about anybody. And then I read Kevin's column in the Washington Post. Uh, Kwame Brown was a number one draft pick for the Washington. Were they the Wizards then already? Yeah, they were the Wizards. Oh, yeah. Uh, back in Wizards. 2000. Yeah. And Working their magic. Wizards, yeah. One, I want to say. Correct. Uh, and, well, why don't you set it up, uh, Kevin, and then I'll take it from there. The, the story the legacy of Kwame Brown. Sure. So he's drafted here, the first high school um, uh, number one pick in the history of the, uh, of the NBA. Um, and uh, Michael Jordan was here then, and uh, Doug Collins um, was, was the coach. And, um, and they, they picked this young 6'11", 17, 18-year-old out of Brunswick, Georgia, um, which later would give us Armet Arbery. Um, and at any rate, um, he gets here with this fairly veteran crew. Um, and, uh, there was a story that ran in the Washington post magazine about that time, maybe a year later, I can't remember, um, by Sally Jenkins about who Kwame Brown was. And it was really a gut wrenching story, basically about, um, a kid and I, and I use that purposely, a kid from nowhere uh, in, in the South who classically grew up poor, one of seven or eight kids, um, family broken. Um, you, you know the stereotypical story. Um, siblings in prison. Uh, and completely, completely um, unequipped to be thrust into the adult life of an NBA player. Um, so uh, his time in, in Washington was horrible. Um, after a while, they got rid of him. And over the course of a number of seasons, he just became... Um, the butt of jokes. Uh, he was called, he was of course, of course called a bust um, because he never, he could never live up to his status as being the first draft pick um, uh, in the NBA, in the NBA draft. Certainly not the first high school number one in the NBA draft. Um, you know, the expectations were he would be 
what we come to learn of now, he would be a he was a LeBron James before LeBron James. That's what he was supposed to be, and he was nowhere close. And uh, you know, media was very cruel to him. Um, Michael Jordan was not very nice to him. Um, much of the NBA was not very nice to him. Uh, but somehow he he managed to hang around for twelve seasons. Um, never really got in trouble. You never really heard anything about him. If he got in a game, people would reference how much of a failure he was. And then, um, now that we are in this digital age where people do and say and perform all sorts of ways um, in digital space to be heard by everyone, um, Matt Barnes, Gilbert Arenas and Steven Jackson uh, were on a radio show. And it's not Gilbert Arenas's show, it's Barnes and Jackson's show. And uh, they started to crack wise once again about what a failure, what a bum, what a bust Kwame Brown was. And Kwame Brown hasn't played in, he hasn't played in, he was, was it 12 seasons, he hasn't played since 2013. He's been gone. 20 years ago, he was drafted. And, but this time, Kwame Brown flipped the script. Uh, and he got on YouTube, and he let all of his critics have it for about an hour and 15 minutes in his original post, and then after that for a lot more. Uh, and, you know, the strange thing for me, Ben, was I'd never heard Kwame Brown before, ever. I'd never seen him interviewed. I never, no one. No one's going to spend any time. I never heard his voice. I had no idea what he sounded like, what his cadence was, what his phraseology was. Um, and uh, so to listen to him was one thing. But then, of course, he, his language was loaded with profanity um, and uh, disparaging um, uh, names. But, but once you filter that out to get to the essence of what he had to say, he was 100% correct. It was a brilliant analysis of digital media in particular today. And um, it really resonated with me, which is why I decided to, to write about it. Originally, um, I wasn't even going to listen to it. A friend of mine called me and said, hey, have you, have you said anything about Kwame Brown? I said, no. He said, well, you, got, he said, you haven't even listened to it? And I, and I just told him, I said, no, I just dismissed that as digital noise. I, I'm, not, I'm not about that. And he, he begged me, he said, you've got to listen to it. And it was one of those things that I turned on, I couldn't turn it off. Um, and, you know, it really spoke to what another guy has written about, an academic the um, hot take industrial complex where people get in digital space and say and do whatever they want, um, knowing that the only repercussions really are maybe they get a few more clicks, a few more listeners. And there's no regard at all when speaking about another human being about um, what what you say and how you say it and how that person may um, may absorb it. And of course, 
Barnes and Jackson are not, they're not journalists. Um, Gilbert Arena's not a journalist. He was a guest. Um, so they are completely unaware um, in a communication space of, you know, one of the pillars of, of the Society of Professional, Professional Journalists about um, being respectful of people you write about, you report about, you interview, respecting them as human beings, right? That, no clue, no clue. So he let them have it. Um, he called them names, um, but in between calling them names, um, you know, he checked them. He checked them. And they really had no good comeback. Um, and then he went after Stephen A. Smith, you know, somebody I've known since he was covering, covering Temple University basketball, um, you know, in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, they, they, they went after him. And, of course, Stephen A. comes back. He doubles down. Right? He puts together a video of the worst of Kwame Brown's, you know, basketball playing career. But here's what Stephen A. missed. And this is where this is where um, Kwame just got all of them. You can't you can't call him a bust. Nobody in the NBA is a bust. A guy who plays who manages 12, 12 years in the NBA is not a bust. Those are the best basketball players on the planet Earth. Not a bust. And for as he said, and for a kid who came from um, a free lunch program with no shoes on his feet. Um, a mother laboring to take care of a family of seven or eight kids, um, working in hotels, um, you know, uh, uh, cleaning hotels and making up beds. Uh, for him to get this far and be able to buy her a house on a golf course at age 18, that's saying something. But they didn't, they didn't, they didn't mention that. They didn't contextualize it. They just took shots cheap shots, which is what he had suffered yeah. all his career. Uh, <clears throat> that was really well done, Kevin. Uh, that was a great recitation of uh, and what went down. I just want to point out a couple things. Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson are not journalists. They're former basketball players, for my non-sports fans who are listening to this. Uh, and they have a podcast, a very successful podcast, very funny podcast. I've listened to it from time to time. Uh, and Gilbert Arenas is, yeah, <laughs> no, no journalist. Uh, he is himself a retired basketball player uh, who had his own checkered career with the Washington Wizards. Uh, and the three of them got together, and all they did was rip on Kwame Brown. And uh, Kwame Brown responded just like Kevin said. And I think, you know, beyond the personalities, I've not seen uh, Barnes or Jackson apologize to Kwame Brown. I don't know if they have or they haven't. I've not seen their follow-up. I did follow the Stephen A. Smith part where Steve, Stephen A. Because this gets into the journalism part. Because Stephen A. Smith is perhaps the most successful uh, sports journalist in America right now. He's a superstar with a huge platform, as Kevin knows. And... Uh, a very unique style. Uh, and when he talks, it goes far in the world, in the universe. Uh, you might say he's the modern day Howard Cosell, uh, for folk, older folks who can remember Howard Cosell, maybe even exceeded Howard Cosell. Uh, it, it, each of them is unafraid to get people mad at them. 
you know what I'm saying, with their rhetoric. And they each of them professes to be telling it like it is. I'm just telling it like I was how I tell it like it is, Howard Cosell. So uh, you know, I believe putting aside podcasters uh who are just laughing at somebody and using them the butt of their joke, the part that's really relevant to sports journalists, and Kevin, this is what I said before the show began, is that so much sports journalism has become trash talking. And it's one thing for for you and me when we're at a Northwestern football game once a year, bemoaning our my bulls and your wizards and you know, among ourselves, oh this, but it's another thing when you get on a public platform and start trashing this guy is a choke right. artist. He can't I I feel as though we've gone too far with that. And I thought crystallized in many ways with uh, Naomi Osaka, the tennis player who who walked away from the French Open largely because she did not want to have to be subjected to reporters' questions at a press conference. And I don't know if this you 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 teach journalism, you write journalism, you know, you write a conference sports section. Is it, have we come a moment? Have we reached a moment? Where sports journalists are starting to look in the mirror and reconsider this bashing that they feel obligated to do of public athletes? Ooh, you know, I don't know that we've reached that point because, you know, this is a capitalist society and this style pays, right? I mean, it pays. So it pays Stephen A to double down. Um, as you pointed out, you know, Jackson and Barnes have a very successful podcast. And I haven't, you know, I, I, I haven't listened to it, but I get the news clips out of it, right? When they make news, like they made with Kwame Brown, I'll, I'll, I'll see that. Um, but, you know, this is, kind of the, this is kind of the ecosystem that it's become. And uh, with all of these digital platforms, um, many of them populated by people who aren't journalists, but who are, you know, who are sports fans who have um, who have created or had created for them some sort of platform. I, I don't you know, I, I don't I don't think we're I don't think that we're at that point. You know, the Naomi Saka thing, I think, is a, a little bit different because, as we know now, she's saying that she's struggled with some she's had mental struggles over that part of the spotlight. And she's not the first one to have that happen. Um, but she did call out the journalists for asking ridiculous um, questions, which is something that has not gone away. We, we need to learn to ask, ask better questions. Um, I will say this, and this might be maybe unfair, but I think she was pointing the finger mostly at the foreign press, more at the foreign press than the U.S. press. But we, we ask bad questions, too. Um, but no, I don't think we're at that point yet. I don't think that we're, I think I think, you know, I think the reaction is. You know, I think the reaction is more. I mean, I think to your point, it's become a trash talk industry. That's why this guy at uh, um, I forget, Michael Servazio, I think, um, at Boston College. I mean, he, he, he coined the phrase. You know, the, the hot take industrial complex, you know, and to me, it's not about journalism. Um, it's just about 
it's just about saying the first thing that pops into your mind um, without thinking about whether or not you might be offending someone's sensibilities. Um, I think Steven Jackson did apologize. Matt Barnes, I'm not so sure. Stephen A doubled down. Um, but I'm just glad Kwame checked him, you know? And, and I'm glad that he seems to have now monetized his reaction to them. <laughs> so maybe he's, maybe he's taking a bite out of their wallet, right? Um, and, and the other thing about this is, and people don't want to, a lot of people don't want to talk about this, but this is, you know, this is unnecessary black on black male criticism. Um, you know, we expect, we expect black folks in media, whether you're a journalist or not, but okay, you're in me to have a different, um, a different analysis of a situation, particularly if you're a black male athlete, that you would, you would have a more nuanced analysis of Kwame Brown's situation. But they didn't bring that. They just brought they just brought the common, everyday, stereotypical criticism of the black male athlete, which Kwame brilliantly checked them on again. He didn't go to college, but he checked them on that. And I, and I, thought, that was, I thought that was fantastic, too. You know, because if you're on that platform, if you're not going to, if, if, if you're going to just sound like everybody else, why should you even have that? Why should you even have that job? You know, why should you be afforded that? Um, or as he said it, um, I can't remember exactly how Kwame phrased it, but, uh, oh, you, he said something like doing the white man's bidding. That's exactly the way he put it, you know, so good for Kwame. No, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I want to give a shout out to Greg Kelly, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of the show, uh, who was the one who turned me on to the Kwame, uh, video in the first place. So shout out to Greg for that. And, uh, yeah, I, I I don't even apologize for the, the foul language. I mean, that's where we're at. I don't do it, but that's where we're at. Is it, you know, the, it's a podcasting thing. I mean, uh, but right. I thought he told it to quote uh, Howard Cosell. He told it like it is. He sure did. He, he, he flat out told it like it is. And if they trashed me that way and I was that wrong, I would have said, I'm sorry. You're right. I learned. Exactly. I don't know why people can't do exactly. that today. I, I don't, I don't get it. You know, but that's 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 part of it. I mean, if you're if you're there's nothing bigger than saying you were wrong, right? I I mean, made a mistake. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's what would define sports. You you strike out one at bat, you get the game winning RBI in the in the eighth or the ninth. You you miss the free throw in the in the uh, first half. You hit the game clinching free throw. In the second half, and you know, and people forget that you were two for ten from the line or whatever, whatever it was. But yeah, there's no no shame in saying my bad. Come on. You you, you said something there, and I want to get you to come back to it. Us uh, journalists often uh, ask bad questions. What do you mean by that? What is a bad question? You know, I didn't realize until I started teaching that um, I would always ask students um, at the end of class, like. What would you have liked to have learned more about? What would, what discussion? And early on, it became how to ask a question. And uh, so now I do a session on, on asking questions, and I also do a session with someone, um, 
from whom we we solicit information. So I'll have an, have an athlete, coach, agent, somebody like that who is always in the spotlight. Um, and there's a whole science to asking questions. You've got to figure out what your story is, the information that you want to extract from the subjects that might be involved, and then putting together a question that hopefully elicits the right information. And you can listen, you can hear it now. You even hear it in sometimes in White House press conferences. But people don't know how to ask a question. So they'll start out by saying, can you talk about it? Which just drives me crazy. Um, or they will almost filibuster their question by giving a history about what happened as if the athlete or coach sitting in front of them that just went through this for the last two hours doesn't know. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. you know, or they, or they will... Um, now they, they will just ask questions that really don't get to the heart of what it is you're trying to you're trying to do. Um, and Naomi Osaka, somebody put together a list of questions that sh- she had to field over the last year or whatever. And some of them are just just really they're just really not intelligent. And, and, and what are you supposed to you know? And what are you supposed to say as an as an athlete? And then you have to sit there. You know, some athletes can do it. They can sit there and they can take the same question over and over again for whatever reasons. Others, they they can't and don't want to. And to some extent should not, you know, should not have to. Um, so I just think that, you know, asking questions, I mean, I, I think it's hard about the question that I'm going to ask someone when I'm interviewing them as I do about the lead that I'm going to write which is my front porch to the story that I want people to read. I mean, because that, that's my only chance to get information from people. So you really got to really gotta think about that question. Make it a smart question. Make it a succinct question, right? And don't make it a two and three part question that the person forgets the first question you <laughs> ask them because now you <laughs> ask them about something else. Oh, yeah. And I got a third, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> and, and don't be a smart ass yeah. with your questions, right? Yeah. I mean that's annoying. Um, so, <laughs> and you know what I mean, right? The three parter. <laughs> yeah, the three parter. I got yeah, three part. Look, just ask your part. There are other people in the room. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I can empathize with, uh, and I'm sure I've asked stupid questions before. Um, well, you know, I gotta, I gotta tell you, there's something about sports journalism. Uh, and we listened to you talk. It brought back a memory. Uh, sports journalists in many instances are compelled to ask questions of people who've just suffered some of the most disappointing losses that you can possibly imagine. And they're devastated. And yet your job requires you to ask them why they did the things they did. And I remember, I remember an interview on TV. I can't believe I remember this. Uh, Kevin with, I think, Davey Johnson. Oh, you know Davey Johnson. He played second base for the Baltimore Orioles back in 19. Uh, and uh, he came on, went on to become a manager. And also was a manager right here. Yeah. Yeah. Did he manage the Nets? I didn't, yeah. Yes, he, he, did. managed he, did the, manage, um, he managed the Nets. He didn't manage the World Series champion Nets from, Nets from just a couple seasons ago. But no, go ahead. <laughs> Pointing it out. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we work. Talk about working stuff into a question. Oh, the world's heavy. Yeah. 
managed by Davey Martinez, a Chicago Cub graduate. Yeah. Yeah. Know. By the way, do you want oh, to pass? By the way, it was hilarious. The Oh, my God. We're in a tangent with it, a tangent with a tangent. When the Nats were playing the Cubs a couple weeks ago, whatever that was, and the umpire made a horrible call, Davey Martinez comes out, he picks up the base, and he throws these seats. I was cracking yeah. up. Oh, my God. I love it. He, he learned that from Lou Pinella. But anyway, going back to my question. So David Johnson is being interviewed. I think it's when he was managing the um, the Mets, and they had lost some really horrific game, maybe in a World Series game. I can't remember. Uh, but so when the reporter, it's when a TV reporter asks him about his strategy and how it completely backfired. And I, re, and I remember David Johnson, I'm paraphrasing, best of my memory, saying, what are you trying to make me feel bad? And and then he gave a, it, you know, like the question was like, what a stupid strategy. I mean, if you were like to put the subtitles under the question, what an idiotic strategy that you you employ that right. caused your team loss. And I, and he goes, what do you make you feel? And I can't think of any other industry or any other field endeavor there in politics where you're compelled to come face to face with your greatest disappointments in the very moment that you're feeling them like sports like boxers battle bruised battle but knocked out they have to face the press uh right i just i'm thinking politics they make an announcement to their uh we ran a good fight and they, they go off. They don't then they get subjected to a press conference from a horde of reporters. Maybe I don't know. Maybe we got to rethink everything. And well, you know, and 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 sports journalism has gone through um, has has gone through an evolution. Um, so it wasn't always like this. It was really bad because in the golden age of sports writing, the 1920s, um, sports writers built heroes out of out of the athletes right whether it was the four horsemen at notre dame or whether it was babe ruth they created these larger than life um figures and uh and i get this from bob mcchesney at the university of illinois who's written a brilliant concise um uh history and analysis of sports journalism um, and media in general and so in the 1920s when you had the newspaper wars in every city um, editors and publishers and editors realized that people would be turned off by political news. Um, and so they pleaded with their sports pages, which where they realized people were more and more attracted to, um, to steer clear of any serious news. Um, and so that's where the sports department gets the, the, the nickname, the store, the toy department. Right. And that's really how sports um, news becomes uh, watered down um, outside of issues just within the realm of sports. And so, you know, the media never really challenged people. There's a great story that Bert Sugar tells about um, uh, the, the press car um, uh, with the Yankees once where um, uh, the guys are playing, the reporters are sitting on the press car and they're playing cards and and he says a uh, one end of the the train car opens up and Babe Ruth comes running down the the aisle naked yeah <laughs> and he goes out the other door and it slams shut and then they said then the the door opens again and there's a woman equally as naked 
with a knife in their hand. A knife in her hand. She goes running through the other door in the class, slams, cl- slams shut. And he said, one of the reporters looked, lifted his head from the card game and looked at the other reporter and said, well, there's another story we're not getting in the newspaper. <laughs> that's the way it was, right? Yeah. It was not confrontational. It was promotional. Yeah. Right? To the standpoint where newspapers, right, where the, where the teams paid you to cover their games. Right. So and and so now we're in this confrontational, which is fine. It's good to ask questions. But, um, you know, I think we have to you know, we have to understand, like we have to remember that there is a cooling down period for a reason after Mm -hmm. a game. Right. Gives them hopefully people can get their wits about them, um, you know, again. But, yeah, I think we should be, you know, I, I think we should be a little bit sensitive to that doesn't mean you have to write softer stories or that you give them softball questions but i think you just have to be a little bit aware of the you know of the of the situation certainly with with naomi osaka i mean she's how old is she 21 22 i don't know i mean she's very young right so i mean i think people have to be um they have to keep that in mind when we serve up questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think uh, if there's there's really no such thing uh, as a nice way to ask someone at their most vulnerable moment about a most devastating life. You know, there's, it, there's no hardball right. question. There's no softball question. Uh, no. And yet you are required you have to ask it. Yeah. You have to ask it. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so you, you have, yeah, you have to ask it. Yeah. You, know, have to ask top, it. you know, yeah. but it can't be. Yeah. But it can't be like, like if you miss a free throw at the end of a game that costs a series, you can't ask. I mean, I don't, I think a dumb question is how did you miss that free throw? What do you mean, how did I miss the free throw? Yeah. You know, you, you try and shoot a free throw <laughs> yeah. with everything on the line. A few million people watching on TV. How do how do I miss it? I I don't know. I went like this. I went like. What do you mean? How did I miss it? Yeah. I mean, so you got to be. You got to. I mean, what are you supposed to say? Yeah. Um, so you got to figure out questions. I, I also just think uh, we'll close with this: that you always have to take into account that no matter how obsessed we fans may be with the game, uh, it is a game. You know. So, uh, and there will be many more. Uh, you know, uh, to quote the great Dwayne Thomas, uh, if they do it every year, well, how is it the Super Bowl if they're going to do it next year? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it is a game. Okay, uh, guys? Dwayne it's, Thomas. Yeah. That's Dwayne right. Thomas. From, it, that's uh, true. It, it is a game. I wish Chris Collins could win a few more um, at Northwestern. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing with that roster, who's recruiting. I don't understand why they couldn't have gotten Pat Baldwin Jr., whose father played at Northwestern. And instead is going to play for Wisconsin lacrosse or whatever little school <laughs> Pat Baldwin Sr. is at. You would think that that's a recruit we could get. But I'm not. Hey, I'm just saying. I'm just uh, saying. That's, that's the disgruntled Northwestern alumnus uh, <laughs> speaking. Uh, once a year, uh, Kevin comes out to Evanston with a bunch of his friends from the classes of the early 80s. And they all gather, and I gather with them, and we watch Northwestern uh, more often than not lose. Last time we were together was rain, 
Hey guys, you want to hear a bunch of sour pusses? Sit with some Northwestern alum in the rain while they're lo- one of the worst. I think it was Iowa. One of the most god awful displays of football I've ever seen. God, I'm going to a little shout out to Udawak because after every game, after every homecoming game, we go and eat and <laughs> at Udawak's house. Yes, we paired in his house. That's right. Uh, all right, Barry. We have to bring Udawak uh, on the show sometime oh, to answer questions. Uh, oh, yeah. He's Mr. Sports. The man loves sports. He's got like three TVs in that house, each one bigger than the other one. And uh, take your pick which TV you're going to watch. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> All right, Kevin, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me, and uh, you stay well, all right? You too. Peace. All right, that's the great Kevin Blackstone, a reporter, alumnus, great sports writer, a distinguished professor. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Ooh.